2: Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See,
3: I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, up there in
0: New York City. That's
3: Fangraphs zone That was a good one. Fangraphs zone John Taylor. Yes. He's right. always in the Valentine's mood because the new spot for John in new york city is Mm -hmm. john is in a pink sanctuary to do these pods
0: a a very comfortable place if you'd like like very comfy i got the the black hoodie going so if you want i can just kind of stretch out and try to cover it up like there we go that's I, i feel really bad for anyone who's throwing this on and their first immediate image is me going like Full buffalo bill with the like, mm-hmm. oop, and I just ripped out my own <laughs> headphone and doing this. We're off to a banger of a start right now.
3: YouTube.com slash Chase Thomas podcast to see this. And I might have to capture that still of John just puffed out with, the, yeah, just, with the I, I, up.
0: I, making myself bigger so that predators stay away.
3: You look like a <laughs> what is the animal that does that? Is that a I feel, lizard? I feel like there are lots of animals that do that. Well, what's the thing? one that's like face springs out? Isn't it some kind of lizard? You know what I'm talking about? Where it like You're puffs out, the, out that the, yeah, all, the body stays the same, like but a, it like
0: like the horned lizard yeah i think that's maybe what it is
3: yes that's what i know there's one
0: that like weeps blood or something again off to just a banger of a start right
3: now. hold on there's nothing more just baseball than uh lizards weeping blood john is it a baseball podcast if that's not what we head on to start things off
0: Not really, no. I mean, I I know that anytime I listen to Effectively Wild or Mm -hmm. any of the Athletics MLB podcasts, you know, I'm always thinking to myself, when are they going to talk about the lizards that shoot (laughs) blood from their eyes? Everyone's talking about. People are talking. Mm -hmm. You're hearing it more and more, and we're going to be considering it very strongly.
3: We are um well john don't forget yes. folks you can uh, listen to john and i we're on a different day this week usually on tuesday nights uh each week uh during the major league baseball season but y'all are getting this on a thursday morning a different setup this week but uh great nonetheless and uh we'll be pods with john each week at this very time mm-hmm. so check that out uh, for all the good major League baseball folks if you are a first-time listener look out for major league baseball conversations um on wednesdays generally speaking but thursday this week but check that out find john uh on the bad place at jay taylor uh, myself at Chase underscore thomas um, email us if you have any major league baseball questions you'd like us to answer on the program anything like that you can email us Chase Thomas podcast at gmail.com like i mentioned at the top email or uh youtube yeah we're on youtube shorts tiktok all that kind of stuff all at chase Thomas podcast so like and subscribe all that good stuff and then of course if you're an apple podcast listener so uh, Spotify, any of the big ones, leave us a rating and a review. Tell us what you like. John and I talking all things baseball. Anything positive, no negative feedback. We don't no want negative. it. I like don't, don't want
0: to hear your complaints and your problems, people. Like no. I, I, I don't, I don't care. No, don't tell me bad things.
3: Just do positive stuff. Yeah, we're here it's to positive this
0: is, show. This is a family podcast, except for all the times I swear.
3: <laughs> You're still one of my dad's favorite, John. And well, that's uh, good. I,
0: yeah. I'm glad that my potty mouth has yet to lose me. Uh, fans and listeners
3: it's funny my dad like i'll see him this weekend and he god bless him but he like has like a ranking system in his head and he'll like tell me who's the good ones who's not like who he's fans of he'll just make sure to let me know who he likes and who he doesn't um or this week he'll like even tell me "Mm, not your best stuff or (laughs) just really great stuff Um, he's
0: he's out there watching the tape grinding mm -hmm. uh you know trying to keep you on on the on the straight and narrow i like it
3: yeah hey, that's that's what being a, a good dad is right just yeah. being uh, being brutally honest it's about, about it's
0: about watching tape and grinding yes
3: yes that's what we love on this very program john um well yeah ML, mlb off-season grades i want to start here real quick so mm-hmm. um we're done the off-season's over all the big off-season signings over. are over spring
0: training has begun the the photos from beats <laughs> the poorly focused weirdly smeared lens Mm-hmm. shots of random dudes you can't identify working out in backfields in Florida and Arizona mm-hmm. best time of the year honestly just to to see Bob Nightingale tweeting stuff that is just badly blurred and you don't can't really tell what it is I think my favorite was um, MLB invited all the, uh, the reporters based out in Arizona mm-hmm. and I guess both Arizona and Florida they did one in, in, in Arizona and then another one in, in Dunedin where the Blue Jays do spring training to go over the rules, to to show the the new base versus the old base because the new base is bigger, and I think the one I love most because like every every beat writer tweeted a photo of the base, mm-hmm. um, because I guess they were they all felt obligated to. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed that Bob's first attempt was a photo of just the bigger base without the smaller one for any context. It was just here's the new base, and if you didn't know any better, it is exactly. I just he, he never misses. He, he never ever misses
3: uh 10 out of 10 no notes uh no notes on those tweets and those picks no notes at all um well john i want to do the big ones and the little ones so i have a couple that i have outlined here okay start with the negative okay there were a couple f's and a couple d's in this one okay the obvious ones we don't update on colorado rockies f
0: yeah i mean that's the the rockies should have just a permanent f on their off season (laughs) until and unless something changes so
3: literally the worst grade Um, so shout out to them Uh, well they
0: did they did literally nothing this offseason
3: they signed Brandon Suter or Brent Suter which is just Nolan Jones it's so Jose (laughs) Arena
0: it's so cruel to put Brent Suter on the Rockies that dude throws 84 miles an hour like making him pitch in Colorado is so so cruel
3: yeah not great not great Bob the White Sox F
0: that's very well deserved
3: the Reds an F
0: also, I mean, it feels weird to grade the mm. Reds offseason because they're not trying actively mm. right now. Although I will say, I feel F is a little strong. I would have gone with a D, but I think mm. that's mostly because I, I actually like them adding Will Myers because mm. I think he's his bat will should play really well in Cincinnati. And I think if nothing else, they should be able to get a decent return for him if they move him. But, I mean, ultimately, the D is just the gentleman's F. So
3: Exactly. Generally. Um, I, had about, I think I never got a D in school, but like if I had to like a C or an F I'm taking F or a D or an F excuse me I'm just failing because then it's just like hey I failed I messed up but like a D is like a D is kind of
0: embarrassing a D is like an F at least is like you just straight up fail a D is like you weren't even capable of failing (laughs) yes like you 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 weren't good enough to get a better grade but you also weren't dumb enough to fail completely yes if you're gonna get a D you might as well just not show up for like if you feel it in your bones where it's like I'm gonna get a D on this thing it, it, get you up have and like leave. a
3: 54 in a class and you take the final because you're like i might be able to salvage this <laughs> to like I, what, what are you doing just skip that's the final you the failed one, this semester
0: the one positive of a d is that at least when i was in college the pass mm. fail uh divider grade was a d i remember mm. because i was taking a class my freshman year that i both lost interest in in part because it was a class on the seventh floor of a building that was more or less a walk-up Mm. it had an elevator but the elevator was old and tiny and slow and so it could only hold like four or five people so you're so, doing seven
3: flights of stairs
0: yeah so that very quickly became a problem for 19 <laughs> year old me and on top of that it was a subject matter i think it was a philosophy class where i just i just lost interest very fast mm. so eventually i went to the registrar's office to change my grade to the, or to change the to a pass fail grade because i i did, it wasn't a major requirement i didn't need it for grad i was just like i just don't want to literal like d or an f on my record mm-hmm. and i remember asking them uh what is the what is the threshold for pass fail and the way the person at the registrar's office phrased it i'll never forget was you get the d you get the p like <laughs> you get the d you pass and let me tell you the feeling of going into the final exam knowing i had beaten a d average mm-hmm and just sitting there with that final exam and then like halfway through going, wait, wait, you know what, this doesn't matter anymore. And just like scribbling something out. I was the first person to finish that exam. <laughs> Very proud of myself to walk out of there and be like, nothing matters. So it, the one, there is one way in which a D is actually a good grade to get.
3: This reminds me of Road Trip. I think that was uh, the classic late 90s staple, um, yeah. Tom Green, where he's taking a philosophy class, and that's what he's trying to do, and he has to learn philosophy and no, the whole it's, um, car, the bus ride back to campus. Because
0: the the main character that is Brecken Mayer, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and so he has an exam he's trying to pass, mm-hmm. but then the shysty weed-smoking guy yes, is like, I can teach you philosophy, <laughs> and he does it by by professional Presenting wrestling it, yeah but through through the lens of professional wrestling which i always kind of liked it was like mm. oh that's actually kind of clever honestly yeah. and then but, he
3: passes and there you go uh not spoiled the 1998 hit road trip yeah but, i was
0: gonna say starring tom green briefly andy dick mm-hmm. um Stifler, my, uh, stifler's in it stifler's in it he um, gets a prostate massage at one point
3: he does and it ends up becoming his kink uh, yeah
0: what a, what a movie what a movie for impressionable youth
3: it's a good movie, though. It's, it's, a, fun it's a fun time. Very it's a
0: fun time. It's a
3: fun banger. They don't make movies like that anymore, folks. Like, let me tell you, like, no good comedies where they don't have to mean anything. It's just I laughed for an hour and a half. That's what I wanted. Just a, a light, just funny comedy. Where, you where are they giggles. going?
0: You, you want to have a good time.
3: Yeah. It's all about good times. The world is burning. The world's terrible. I just want to have is, a good time for an hour and a half. <laughs> this, is,
0: this, is a, this is a dark episode right now.
3: <laughs> all I want is more road trip uh road trip movies and do you know a fun fact that you never knew you needed to know do you know who would have played tom green's character if tom green did not take the role who was down to uh
0: i i'm hoping it was someone like robert de niro or like jeremy strong from succession like mm. um jim belushi like a, a really really method daniel day lewis i really <laughs> enjoyed that who, who was it though
3: zach galifianakis I could see that. Yeah. Um,
0: I think he would have done quite well with that role, but still still out here hoping for the alternate universe road trip with Daniel Day Lewis. That would be a lot of fun.
3: That would be fun. He needs to do more comedies. Um, We get it. You're great. Uh, The Los Angeles Dodgers and the Giants both got D pluses from Dave Schoenfield, which jumped out to me because I was like, that's harsh, man. I don't know. D plus. So I, I
0: I think that's harsh for the Dodgers. But I also think it's understandable because they really didn't have much of an off season, and truthfully, if their plan for this off season was in fact get below the luxury tax uh, mm-hmm. threshold, then they failed. And granted, <laughs> they failed because Trevor Bauer's suspension got reduced, and there wasn't really anything they could do about that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like that's also why you don't make a plan of well, if this exact thing holds exactly the way we need it to everything will be fine like mm. i can understand that if you're especially because la and we we've talked about it has that you know that that uh expectation of well this is a, a world series contending team that's won the division like 19 straight years like you know that's not a team you expect to set spend an entire offseason going eh, like that <sighs> you, you just don't really see that and, I, and for the giants i think also harsh it's not one, it's not their fault Aaron Judge prefers New York to San Francisco. Right. Two, it's not their fault that Carlos Correa's ankle apparently is just like chronically busted or something, But, mm. or as we will we'll, we'll see. But I yeah. think that's also fair when you consider that when you look at San Francisco's roster, what really stands out is, boy, does this team need like an elite six-plus war player in the mm. lineup. And that would have been either Judge or Correa, either of whom would have been filling an immense position of need for that team going forward. So I, I think if you like, yeah, again, like it's not necessarily the Giants fault that they couldn't close the deal with either of those guys, but it definitely does impact their roster. And I think, you know, a, a Giants team with either Judge or Correa is right there in the NLS con- in the NLS conversation. Mm-hmm. A Giants team without them, that's a wild card team, probably. And that's obviously a huge, huge difference.
3: Yeah. And we'll see. Like you said, this is one of the pitfalls of. Building through the middle, right? Like this yeah. is one of the issues that you're going to run into. is just that like you eventually need to get the six war guy eventually yeah. to keep this thing sustainable. And, and then the people-
0: and the easiest way to do that is through free agency. Yeah, you know it's really hard to develop that guy, especially because there's no like you can't predict that timetable of like oh how long is it gonna. T-? Whereas like when a guy like Aaron Judge comes on the market, it's like oh yeah just use money. Yeah. Again. The well, Giants won't can, be
3: drafting high enough to get those kind of in because you're winning enough games that you're not going to get one of those top three, top five. Difference yeah. And, and, makers. And,
0: and trying to build an MLB team through the draft is just really brutally difficult. Yeah. This isn't the NBA, obviously. Like it's not even the NFL where it's like you land the franchise quarterback and you can kind of just, you know, build off of that with baseball. Mm-hmm. It's like you, that just does not really happen. Like you see, you know, I, I'm granted like, I think it, like you got a few national team that manages to land Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper back to back or if you're an Orioles team that lands the best catching prospect since Joe Mauer like that's one thing but yeah I, I, I can understand I, like you said they're harsh but I can also understand why both teams end up with those grades because it really was ultimately an offseason that I think both fan bases look at and go well that wasn't exactly great was it
3: right. Um one final big one that i thought was interesting so the two new york teams obviously get a's like okay yankees that's... keep judge they sign rodon like they re-sign rizzo they did what they needed to do by and large 100 percent. and the mets even without correa like it's just it's odd like he, he was the he was a
0: cherry on that
3: sunday right a sunday is
0: still perfectly fine without a cherry but 100%. yeah if, he, if they had signed correa that's an a plus as, as it currently yeah. is
3: yeah it's an a it's, it's an fine a minus a- though for the phillies trey yeah. turner i get that tywin walker Craig Kimbrell I think Craig they needed,
0: I think they did everything they needed to do this off season. I think I, I think if you if you worry about one thing, it's like Walker and Kimbrell are not exactly guys I think you feel confident in for a right. full season. Walker because of health issues. And I think overall because his ceiling I think he has a, a top of the rotation ceiling, but I think the like he is an inconsistent enough pitcher that what you end up with is something closer to a number three or four guy. But on the other hand, Philly could use that. Like they have a mm-hmm. very very good top two in Nola and and Zach Wheeler. We saw what Ranger Suarez did for them uh, during the postseason last year. That was obviously huge. Uh, we've seen you know that they have in particular Andrew Painter, Griff McGarry, uh Mick Abel down in their farm system, really good pitching prospects coming up their way. I think they really needed that one kind of middle of the rotation guy who can just, you know, basically gobble up innings at a better than league average rate, and if he's healthy, that's what Taiwan Walker is. I think there's just a little bit of sticker shock with his price. Mm. Uh similarly with Kimbrel, I think you're betting and banking on him basically traveling backwards in time, but mm. on the other hand and similarly with I think with Soto is he's a guy where I think The numbers and the peripherals don't ever really line up, but at the same time, like, that's pretty much what Jose Alvarado was when the Phillies got him, and look what they've managed to do in turning him into a very, very good reliever for them, so I think, or, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I got, uh, yeah, it is Jose Alvarado, I was thinking Mm of Diego Castillo also, but he's over on the Mariners, Um, I'm getting my X-rays relievers mixed up. And then on top of that, I think Turner was the guy they had to sign, much like New York had to bring Judge back, much like the Mets had to bring back Diaz and had to add a guy, a pitcher in Verlander once they lost uh, DeGrom. I think, you know, shortstop has been such a bad hole for the Phillies since Jimmy Rollins left. You know, he makes that lineup longer. He makes it deeper. He gives them an immediate uh, run-scoring threat at the top of the lineup, a real big speed threat that that team has not really had in quite some time. Uh, I I think that was maybe my favorite signing of the offseason, just in terms mm. of overall fit. Uh, I think Turner is just a really, really good player. So, yeah, I, I think Philly had a good offseason overall. I'm, if anything, I'm trying to think, like, what they could have used on top of that. And maybe it's something where, like, instead of signing Walker, if they had managed to lure Verlander there or something. Yeah. Or if they had managed to... Lure Edwin Diaz away from the Mets. I think then you're really talking about the Phillies as being like serious NL East contenders. But as is, I, I think they had a very good offseason where they did what they needed to do.
3: The, the top of the AL East is going to be a bloodbath because I mean 100%. He, yeah, folks, John, you know this. Here's a good trivia question: How many times has Alex Anthopoulos not won the NL East?
0: uh Has he not won it? No, he won it last year. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Braves were a wild card team when they won the World Series.
3: Nope.
0: Did they win the division that year?
3: They did win the division
0: with like eighty nine wins. How bad was the NL East that year? It wasn't great. Yeah. I I for some reason had convinced myself that the I'm I'm probably just conflating it with the Phillies being a wild card team last year.
3: Yeah, they did make it. Zero times, John. Zero times. Okay. Just saying that. I, I, I'm just saying. Everyone's the the A plus Phillies and Mets. Let's see. Let's see it, John. Let's let's just see it.
0: I, I look it's gonna be a very fun division this year
3: i think it's, it's gonna, gonna be a bloodbath very man. very fun division uh also glad that Dansby didn't end up in uh new york or philadelphia that was no, he
0: gets to go be like semi-relevant in chicago that's fine yeah
3: um what's not fine frankie Montas looks like he's gone for the year john taylor how big of a blow is this for the yankees
0: so, on the surface, I think it's survivable because, you know, with, Monta- with Montes down, uh, they do have a ready made replacement in Domingo Herman. Obviously, you know, good, healthy Montes is a big step up from Domingo Herman, who is pretty much mm-hmm. a league average pitcher at this point in time. Sean- Domingo Herman is 30 years old. I would not have. Really? I would not have guessed he's already that old. Uh, huh. He's older than Luis Severino, which is kind of weird to think of. He's actually older than Carlos Rodon. Huh. That's a weird Wait, one.
3: Wait, how old is Severino now?
0: Uh, 29. Okay. But. Hmm. Uh, I think if you're the Yankees, so there are two things. There are two things to start to worry. One is that the rest of that rotation, with the exception of Cole, is not really the picture of of perfect health. Mm. You've already got Nestor Cortez starting the year off slow because of a hamstring strain that's going to keep him out for the first two weeks of spring training, and is going to and knocked him off the Team USA WBC roster, which is a bummer. Uh, Severino obviously coming back from Tommy John surgery, and while he's looked fine, uh, he's also someone who's who's battled arm issues on and off throughout his career. Herman similarly, and obviously a guy who, based on the DV suspension he got, I don't know how good you, if you're the Yankees, you feel about him keeping out of trouble. And then Rodon, another guy who has bought battle issues throughout his career. I think the other part of that, that if you're the Yankees, you worry is that you, the Brian Cashman traded away a lot of the upper minors starting pitching depth on this team last season, in particular to get not just Montes in a trade that they where they lost uh, four pitchers, where they sent four pitchers to L, to Oakland with the biggest ones being J.P. Sears and Ken Waldachuk, who were high minors options, but also Hayden Wisniewski to the Cubs for Scott Efros, who's going to end up missing the entirety of this season with Tom for, because of Tommy John surgery. So
3: and then Jordan I, Montgomery, too.
0: And Jordan Montgomery, as well, for, for Harrison Bader. And while, mm-hmm. obviously, that trade not only worked for the Yankees in the postseason, but also gave them their starting center fielder for this season, uh, the end result is they do not have a lot of depth left in the high minors. I mean, your yeah. guys now, where if any one of those top five guys, Cole, Rodon, uh, Severino, Nestor Cortez and Herman get injured or have to miss time. You know, you're looking at Davey Garcia who has gone pretty hard bust as a prospect and is out of options too. So a guy who doesn't really have you don't really have flexibility with him to just have him around as a kind of spot guy. Uh, you have Clark Schmidt, who I think could be a, I think could be a really good starter for the Yankees, but I imagine there's probably a conversation as to whether or not they want him rotation or bullpen. Similarly with guys like uh, Clayton Beater, who the Yankees got from the Dodgers in exchange for Joey Gallo. A really good profile but again a guy where it's like you know do we want him in the rotation do we want him in the bullpen I I think that you know there is going to be some real testing of the Yankees depth at this point if they suffer another injury they pretty much and I think that's especially what you don't want this early in the season and spring training already is just to know we've already lost the pillow depth that we had you know Domingo Herman was supposed to be the sixth starter that was, you know, the guy where it's like, hey, if anything happens to one of our starters, at least we've got Domingo Herman. But ideally, that's not something that's not a, a tool you have to reach for until at the very least the season actually starts. Now you're already looking at a, at a, at a situation where we are only five starters deep now. Mm-hmm. You know, there really is not a sixth guy anymore. And if it is, it's, it's either Davy Garcia, whose prospect stock has taken a huge dip in the last two years, or Clark Schmidt, who is, again, a very good pitcher. But certainly, I think the Yankees would prefer having, and and again, even if he's now the number six, there's not really much of a seven behind him. At that point, you're talking about guys like Randy Vasquez or Johnny Brito or or Rule 5 pick Matt Crook, where it's like, you know, these are perfectly fine pitchers, but they're not guys I think the Yankees want to be throwing out uh, to make starts, especially given how tight this division is going to be between them and the Blue Jays and the Rays. So it's definitely a blow for them. I don't think it's the kind of thing that ruins a season, but... Upper minors pitching depth was a real uh, issue for the Yankees going into the season, and they're already going to have to start fi- like figuring out, well, how much of it do we, alre- do we have? Because we're going to need it sooner rather than later. Because, again, I don't think you can realistically expect that quintet of guys to make it through the season fully healthy. And, again, Cortez isn't fully healthy right now. He might get off to a slow start because of that too. So it could be a problem for the Yankees, and I also think it's going to mean – one I, I'm sure Cashman is probably pretty irritated that Michael Waka just signed because he was definitely yeah. the best starting pitcher left on the market even though I think he would be a catastrophic uh mistake in Yankee Stadium mm. but I also think and this is also a potential issue for the Yankees it puts them in a position where throughout the season depending how it goes, they're probably going to be connected to pretty much any available starter that comes onto the trade market and that's been a that's been a place where Brian Cashman has really really struggled you look at the guys that he's added, over the course of the last, like, 10 years in deadline deals, uh, Montes, who basically didn't pitch and it may at this point never end up pitching for the Yankees, really. Andrew Haney, who was a mess. Lance Lynn, who was ba- ba- barely average. I forgot his time Lance the Lynn was a Yankee. I know, right? Uh, Sonny Gray, who also just yeah. did not work out. You know, it, it's definitely... But they can also cons- trade back
3: for him. I feel like that's a possibility. <laughs> you trade back for Sonny Gray or you... Because wasn't Jabba a Yankee twice? Am I misremembering that?
0: Possibly. But I I think what I think, especially now, the issue is if you're relying on Brian Cashman to get a starting pitcher trade right, he has not done that very well in recent years. And so I think that's also a worry for the Yankees is, look, like our deadline deals last year were really did not work. Like they really did not pan out. Like between Montes, Benintendi, Efros, you know, none of these guys really contribute. I think you could argue that Lou Trevino is probably the most impactful deadline addition the Yankees made, which is not presumably what they had in mind and now they're in a position where they might have to do this again this this summer and so Is
3: cashman already texting kim Ng? he's like all right johnny cueto now johnny cueto <laughs> well again now? i, I imagine y'all aren't winning the, the nles so you know that you're like uh kim i appreciate you you always have a job here in new york um i don't think you're going to be employed by the miami marlins this <laughs> time next year just just kim do us a solid yes uh- <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah I, I think especially too it's got to be frustrating for Montes's injury to be timed now because again like you know if this had happened six weeks earlier maybe the yankees are making a move for pablo lopez you know, or whoever yeah. else it happens to be so
3: they'll still be fine like the sky's not falling the yankees no, do this and, for and, whatever reason like we i feel like we get nervous about the rotation every year it's like this doesn't feel deep it feels very injury prone. and then you're like oh the offense is just gonna win so many games like, and that's the all- thing
0: like this is uh, Montes is a good pitcher, but he's like, it, this is a very, very different conversation if we're talking about Garrett Cole or Carlos Rodon.
3: Garrett Cole, there's the emergency like, oh, this is bad, bad. Yeah, Garrett Gar- losing Garrett
0: Cole is one of those like that is significantly bad. Like for you
3: missed season. the postseason bad.
0: Yeah, Montes is one of those things where it's like you can survive it, but it's an mm-hmm. early test of depth for a chunk of the Yankees roster that do- that doesn't really have that much depth left after the trades that they made last year
3: can we call there needs to be a, a name for the six starter it's is it the wascar Yanoa spot can we call it that just sure. the all-time great like you'd never feel great about him in the t- in the five but you're like you want to measure six there's no one better than wascar I mean, i
0: think if you asked yankees fans that's how they feel about domingo herman which yeah. is you know that's a that's not a guy we really want to count on every fifth day yeah but he's also a better option to fill in for starts and pretty much anyone else we can dig up out of anywhere like again like would you rather have if you're the yankees would you rather have domingo herman or michael waka i think you'd rather have domingo herman and i don't right. think it's really all that close either
3: um john yes new rules coming in you mentioned the the new bases a little bit bigger they're bigger uh, now they're a little bit bigger yeah they're it's just bigger. like when you saw the individual you're like whoa and then you see it side by side and you're like okay this is not this really is not
0: that big but yeah, yeah it's, no. it's a little bigger yeah
3: um but of all the new rules coming in pitch clock the new bases, mm-hmm. the runner on second staying permanently uh, in extra. The zombie innings. runner remains. The zombie runner remains. Wasn't that Dan Sembroski who coined that one?
0: I believe I believe Dan is the one who owns the internet, uh, what's it called? The internet
3: copyright, copyright? on that. Yeah. Um, of the new rules that are going to affect this year, two different yes. questions for you. Okay. First one, what is your personal favorite? Mm. And two, what do you anticipate fans complaining about the most of all the new rules? So
0: I think, I don't know if favorite, hmm, trying to, I I like that the the pickoff, that they are going to be just fewer pickoffs now. Not necessarily because I think pickoffs are a bad thing, but because I think it's going to drive pitchers like Max Scherzer completely insane. Mm -hmm. Like I've also said like the pitch clock is going to drive Max Scherzer completely insane. (laughs) Like any, I just love the idea, like imagine Madison Bumgarner the first time he gets an automatic ball because of the pitch clock he might actually explode. He might just, Mm -hmm. you might just see a puff on the mound and all that's left is like a tattered diamondbacks uniform and some like, hay. Mm -hmm. like I don't, I, I think the pitch clock will ultimately be good. I think Mm -hmm. it will have, I think of all the rules that MLB has introduced when it comes to pace of play and shortening the game, because that is for whatever reason, Rob Manfred's all time fixation. Mm -hmm. I think the pitch clock is the one that is most likely to accomplish that goal. And as such, probably the one that we're going to look back on and go, oh, this was actually a good thing. Yeah. Like, I think there for a lot of people, they're going to be like, why did this, why did this take so long to show up in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, because and, I, and I, what I appreciate about the pitch clock is it is it addressing the biggest issue when it comes to pace of play and time of game, which is the interminable amount of dawdling between pitches, mm-hmm. both on the pitcher's part and the batter's part and what i'm going to find really what i find really interesting about it is going to be seeing the knock-on effects of that not just like oh the automatic ball or the automatic strike if you don't get you know back on the mound or back in the boxer in a set amount of time but the idea too that like pitchers are taking this time in between at in between pitches because of the hyper velocity they're throwing at, because of the need to ramp up because of the need to like every pitch is like maximum effort now, or maybe not maximum effort but You know, when you're throwing 95 on the regular, you need a little bit of time for your body to recover and rest and then do it all over again. So I'll be really interested to see how this does affect pitchers with regards to mechanics, with regards to velocity, with regards to just the simple act of pitching. And I think in a similar vein, the and and this isn't going to be a new rule necessarily, but a new enforcement of... Uh, what MLB deems to be illegal pitching motions. And I think the one that Mm. they highlighted, well, there are two that got highlighted in particular. One was this little kind of toe-tap thing Kevin Gossman does That they're going to say, nope, you cannot do that. The big one, I think, is the Astros' Luis Garcia and his rock the baby motion. That Mm. is now a fully illegal motion. So I'm going to be really interested to see because this isn't going to affect every pitcher. I think there, there are many, many pitchers whose motions are completely by the book, who will never ad- have any issue with this new bulk rule or mm. the, new, uh, the new enforcement of the bulk rule. But for guys like Garcia or for Gaussman, you know, where their motions are, you know, these guys aren't doing this in their motion because they, they just want to be funny or whatever. They're doing it because, you know, Garcia said, like, I do that in my motion because it makes it more easily repeatable, you know, which is 10th is is very important for him to be able to throw strikes and be an effective pitcher. So when you're losing, you know, that ability to just reset your body at the pace, at the pace you want, when you're losing the ability to, you know, have a delivery that makes sense for you, if baseball is now deemed it up, you're, but you're coming off the mound for, which I also think the bulk rule is probably one of the least well understood rules in baseball in terms of like the individual person's ability to spot it and say, that's a bulk, that's not a bulk. So I'm Mm -hmm. also looking forward to that particular bit of objection uh of uh, there's gonna be so much courtroom drama i feel like with Mm -hmm. so many of these rules that's just going to be so unnecessary but the the other part is i don't think the other rules and and i think i know we're going to talk about because uh you know you want to talk about the tom verducci piece on what's kind of leads into it yeah i don't really think the the end of the shift is going to make much of a difference i really just don't see it like the kinds of guys that were hurt the most by the shift were plotting lefty sluggers yeah and like those guys are just going to try to hit the ball into the seats anyway. Like the taking the taking away the shift is not suddenly going to turn Carlos Santana into a 350 hitter. You mm-hmm. know? Which I, I also find funny too that, you know, and uh, apologies if I'm just jumping way ahead on this, but like No, this
3: all it blends. The Verducci piece blends with it cuz he wrote yeah. about extensively at SI about um the basically the death of the left-handed hitter uh since the shift in the last couple Which, of years.
0: I think is only the case if you look purely at batting average which i hmm. want to say i know batting average is important i know it is a stat that people hang on to it's still a, a forward-facing stat in baseball like it matters but like here, here's something i want to know here hmm. are the weighted on-base averages for certain left-handed hitters who face an in and i'm just gonna tell you the weighted on-base average and the percentage of shifts these left-handed batters face hmm. kyle tucker saw a shift 91 percent of the time last year his weighted on-base average was 336 Kyle Schwarber saw a shift 90.5% of the time. His weighted on-base average was 365. Matt Mm. Carpenter saw a shift 89.5% of the time. His weighted on-base average was 468 against the shift. Max Muncy, 89% of the time, a 331 Woba. Shohei Otani, and and I want to point out Otani specifically because Verducci mentions him as someone who's been adversely affected by the shift. And oh, can we only imagine what what Shohei Otani will be without the shift? Yohei Otani faced a shift 88% of the time last year, and he still had a 365 weighted on base average. The shift is not killing these guys. If you're hmm. a good hitter, you're just going to hit over the shift. Jordan Alvarez faced a shift 88% of the time, his weighted on base average was 435. Hmm. You know, take Getting rid of the shift is not going to change anything for those guys. They were good hitters before the shift, they were good hitters with the shift, they will be good hitters after the shift maybe it's going to do more for guys like, you know, Rugnet Odor is not on a team right now, but for a guy like Aaron Hicks, maybe Hmm. or or Will Benson or uh, Joey Gallo strikes out too much. But that's also kind of the thing. It's like the guys who are struggling. It's not because of the shift. The shift is just one piece of why they are struggling. Mm -hmm. Like the shift didn't ruin Joey Gallo as a hitter. The fact that he strikes out 35% of the time is Joey Gallo's big problem as a hitter. The shift swallowing up a few like lazy ground balls that That's not really... Okay, let's say five of those lazy ground balls that would have been hits last year now become hits. Hmm. What What is that
3: in terms of a batting average jump? Three points yeah. over the course
0: of a season? Four points? Look, I think, think it some-
3: changes the, the, approach of, the approach of the plate for a lot of these guys, though.
0: No, because I don't think a lot of these guys change their approach in the first place. I think hmm. there were hitters who were good enough to be like, well, if there's a shift in front of me, whatever, I'm just going to hit a ball over it because that's how you beat a shift. Hmm. And the guys who weren't good enough to beat a shift... I don't really think that getting rid of it is—that's not going to solve all their problems. Again, like I, I don't think that if you couldn't, if you could not adjust to the shift, I, I can see how it it obviously hurt you as a hitter. But I don't think it hurt you so significantly that getting rid of it is going to is going to rehabilitate you or revitalize you as a hitter. You
3: know, it feels those like guys, they really want to get more balls in play, right? Like that's and, the goal here, is I think ultimately, I,
0: which I think is understandable and fair because this game has be, has uh veered very sharply in the direction of strikeouts, walks and home runs. We are very much a three true. It is very much a three true outcome sport. And I can understand the league being like, yeah, a a game where you go 25 minutes in between anything but a strikeout or a walk happening. Yeah. Not the most entertaining product for the fan in the stands or watching on TV. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, again, like I don't really think adding a few and I I will say I think there is a certain aesthetic appeal to a ball that is hit really hard right up the middle Mm. being a base hit. For like yeah. 100 years of baseball, that was just a kind of cardinal like belief that you could hold was like if that if when you see a guy hit his ball square on the seams right up the middle, your brain immediately goes, oh, that's a hit. Yeah. And I think it'll be good to get that back. But I think that
3: slaps, John, bring a, back the sharp liners up the middle.
0: They're they, they are great. They're so they, and those are an aesthetically valuable part of baseball mm-hmm. because that's I mean, that is a quintessential like
3: one Pierre baseball hit 9000 hit. of those in his career. But that's the thing, like the dudes who just make their
0: living slapping balls to the right side, like the mm. getting rid of the shift really isn't going to change that much. You know, it's yeah, I don't really think that the solution to baseball's problems is every now and again, we get a weak ground ball through the right side. Mm-hmm. OK, I don't I don't know how much that really gets. I think that's why I think ultimately something like the pitch clock is going to be far, far more impactful because that's every single pitch. Yeah, the the, the absence of the shift really is only going to affect a small percentage of hitters. Because mm-hmm. again, the guys who are good hitters already, the shift wasn't really impacting them that much. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I granted a 336 Woba for Kyle Tucker. That's not great. But at the same time, he's not running a 150. It's not like the shift completely destroyed him as a hitter or, yeah. or Jordan Alvarez or Shohei Otani or Corey Seager or any of these other big left handed sluggers. Like they still were very capable of hitting the ball hard and getting and getting production out of it. Even with an overloaded infield so it will be
3: nice to not see them look at the card though and be like all right we got to move over this way like that would be nice <laughs> to be like all right we got to move like this guy's up like they look at their card and they move over like that'll be I, nice we we're like I, I do what see, are we doing this is so weird
0: <laughs> i do just find it strange though that you know because baseball has never really been in the business of legislating strategy out of the game do you know yeah. what i mean like usually the game has just uh, has just the pitchers adjust, batters counter adjust, batters adjust, mm-hmm. pitchers counter adjust. The league essentially maintains a sort of uh, natural equilibrium, if you want to call it that. Mm. But, you know, I, I again, I can understand MLB's desire for more action, more balls in play, more, a game that looks something closer to what we grew up with. And yeah. what folks older than us, you know, watched in their time, and something that might be more appealing to a younger generation that wants this. Ma- but again, I also don't know. And like, granted, I'm not a Zoomer. You're not a Zoomer. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise, this podcast would be would sound really, really different. But like, I, I, have we? Do we actually know if younger MLB viewers, like, if one of their primary concerns is, "Hey, man, like, I really want to see more balls through the right side of the infield." You know, I'm so sick and tired mm-hmm. of seeing these these is this shortstop or the third baseman standing in shallow right field, I guess more the third baseman, but like, was it weird? Yeah, but like, again, you can get used to it. Good hitters will still thrive despite it. It's just one of those things that feels like a a very desperate attempt by MLB to try to fix something when the core issue is, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, the core issue with baseball isn't so much shifts, you know, the lack of balls. It's the fact that every pitcher throws 95 with a disgusting slider now. Hmm. And that pitching is super far ahead of hitting in that regard. You know, Mm -hmm. and that hitters have not yet been able to find the counter, to find the balance. Now that pitching is such a highly developed border, like not even borderline, a pure out scientific thing where you can design your pitches in a lab and figure out the correct sequencing and tunneling that makes them the most effective. Like that is so hard to combat if you're a hitter. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, the shift hurts you in that regard. It's already that it's already so hard to get a hit, like having the shift there is like, oh, come on, man. But again, I I don't think that the game fundamentally changes in terms of how it's played until and unless you address the fact that pitching is hyper dominant right now. And that's not a shift thing. Again, that is everyone throws a super powerful fastball that they know how to execute perfectly at the top of the strike zone with absolutely disgusting secondaries on top of it. You know, this is the best pitching that baseball has ever seen. These Mm. pitchers now are the best who have ever been in the game and which is great. I love watching great pitching. But it does mean you're going to get a game all in like the late 1960s that is just less offensively focused. And I don't necessarily know that the shift that banning the shift gets rid of that. I do think the pitch clock will probably have more of an impact on. On that than the shift because it is going to do stuff like force pitchers to to put more in reserve and that also may mean that we get starters who since they're not trying to empty the tank at four or five innings they know they have to keep something in reserve because they don't have as much time to you know collect themselves take a breath like get their energy back maybe it's going to mean hey all right i'm executing at 85 percent effort but that means maybe i get an extra three outs out of it maybe we get starters going into the sixth inning again which is also would be a big help toward getting offense levels back up because part of the problem with pitching isn't just that starters are really good, it's that relievers are borderline unhittable right now. Yeah. And if you're an MLB hitter, you are seeing you're seeing the bullpen every single night. You're seeing nothing but dudes who throw ungodly stuff every single night who are just yeah. impossible to hit off of. Anything I think that reorients baseball toward a place where pitchers just cannot go max effort anymore. And, and where starters just by default have to be in the game longer. And I think the other uh, the other rule that comes That'd into play fun here... that be to
3: legislate. Like, no matter how much you're getting pelted, like, insert Orioles pitcher name here, you have to make it through the sixth yeah. inning. Like, and you're not the, allowed to leave.
0: Which I think the other new rule that plays into that here is banning position players pitching unless yeah. a certain runs threshold has been met or you're in extra innings. Which, again, weird. It's just kind of weird to think that, like you have to legislate things out of the game. Similarly Mm. with uh, the the zombie runner and extra innings that you're just not going to let a game go until its natural conclusion. You're just going to force it to end essentially. Um, But I I understand it because I understand that the desire here is to try to make a game that looks something closer to the game that we are used to. Mm. And I think over the last few years with the sheer number of relievers, with how many, uh, with how hard starters throw now with the shift, with seeing so many position players pitching, I think I think it probably started to feel like this like they, it just wasn't baseball anymore. But which I think other people made that point. I saw Joe Sheehan tweet somebody of the effect that the baseball that was played in twenty nineteen is another universe at this point from the baseball that we're going to see in twenty twenty three. You know, and I think I've said this before too. What kind of worries me about MLB's like uh fixation on rules to change the game to make it look the way we want to change it you can't control or guarantee that the rule is going to do what you think it's going to do you know there are always always unintended consequences and side effects to this kind of stuff and i and i worry that baseball has not put enough thought or effort into well what is the game going to look like if we do this stuff instead of just being like well no let's just let's just make it shorter make it shorter make it shorter we people clearly don't want to watch three hours of baseball which I I would argue plenty of people want to watch more than three hours of baseball. I like watching more than three hours of baseball, but you know, I'm sure if we managed to get Rob Manfred on this podcast and I know you, I know he's just dying to to jump on the phone with us. Mm -hmm. You know, he would say something effective. Oh, kids nowadays with their TikToks and their Snapchats and their uh, be real and their whatever else the kids are using, like they don't have the attention span. So we got to make sure the game is dynamic and fun. And it's like, yeah, but what is that what does that do to the baseball itself? What does that do to the mm-hmm. actual sport? When you keep monkeying around with how juiced the ball is, you know, whether or not it's going to be a home run ball or a dead ball this year, like you're not fully like you're not taking into full consideration all the ramifications of this stuff. You're yeah. messing around with the game to try to get one intended uh end result, not realizing that you can't guarantee that intended end result. There's no way to do that. And so I'm really really curious to see How this is all going to work out for MLB now that they are just now that the floodgates are essentially open for we're going to make this rule change and this rule change and this rule change, you know, especially because we're the the pitch clock one and Mm. all the others like the players were on board with the pitch clock was one they were very clearly not on board with. And it didn't matter because they didn't have the votes in the in the MLB joint committee to get it to to get that not passed, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also going to be interesting to see going forward, too, is how many of these rules actually benefit the guys on the field, you know. What is the impact on them going to be? All of which all of which is one big TBD right now.
3: It is. And look, we'll see what ultimately happens here. But I think it's just, it makes it more interesting. It it makes like, I don't know how the season's going to go. I don't know what the ball's going to be like. I don't know. I wonder how many steals are we're going to see uptick. We're, I wonder how and long I, pitchers are going to go. I, I, there's a lot I more unknowns, has, which is fun. It has
0: to be so frustrating for players too, though. Yeah not to know like going into a season, is the ball gonna be normal or not? What's mm-hmm. it gonna be like with the pitch clock? You know, how are these bigger bases gonna impact stuff? Yeah, Like they are obviously all gonna have impacts, but to have no real idea of what the sport's gonna look like with all these changes is a little bit concerning to me to say the least.
3: For sure. Uh, John, last thing here, uh, yes. Mr. Peralta signed with the the Dodgers to wrap up their outfield depth.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say to, to put the cherry on top of their <laughs> D plus Sunday. <laughs>
3: Right, we had to end with it, man. Because it's like right before the start of the spring training and everything else, they just signed Peralta, who became like a kind of a fan favorite in Arizona the last few years and kind of resurrected a career. Seems like a a good baseball guy. Like he grinded. Was a, he was a pitcher. A originally. Wonderful story. An indie yeah.
0: league guy who was was like working at McDonald's before like during while he was playing Indie League Baseball. Yeah. Never had you never would have assumed that guy would turn into a major league player. He's he's an awesome, awesome story.
3: Just a long term bet, not even just a major league player, like staying power like yeah. in his 30s like he's, he is this is gonna be
0: 36 this year that's it's yeah. really wild to think about
3: and he's a pitcher he debuted in major league baseball as a pitcher and is now very much not a pitcher he's a solid player but it looks like he's gonna be at least platooning um at one of the spots like center field probably not it's probably gonna be chris taylor right like we're assuming i, chris I would taylor?
0: assume that center field is trace thompson oh. because i think the dodgers i think Chris Taylor is going to be a guy that they're going to have to plug in all over the place. Hmm. You know, I think he's going to be a guy that they're going to need to put at second sometimes, maybe at shortstop, maybe in left field, maybe in right field, maybe in center. It's just going to depend on what the Dodgers given uh, kind of lineup is. What what kind of concerns me about the Dodgers is, and again, we've talked about this, but, you know, obviously Peralta does not meaningfully change the calculus for them. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's not a guy who moves the needle in any real way. Look, but I'm just looking at the back half of this lineup right now. So it's it's, it starts great. Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Will Smith, Max Muncie. Fantastic, wonderful, no notes, no comments, perfect top Mm -hmm. four. Then things start getting a little hairy, because then you got Mm -hmm. J.D. Martinez. And that dude looked powerfully washed last year, to use a Zoomer term. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you get Gavin Lux, where I think we all pretty much agree that Lux has the potential and the tools to be a great hitter, but it hasn't really happened on a regular basis, and at the same time, they're trying him in a position that we're not really sure he can play, yeah. or at least that he can play long-term. Then it's followed up by Trace Thompson, David Peralta, who will presumably be starting regularly against righties, and Miguel Vargas right now at second base. And I I don't know. I This this, this is the feeling that just the Dodgers offseason has been. It's just like they are trying to fit so many weirdly shaped pieces mm-hmm. into a roster that doesn't really seem to work even with... like, like Peralta, I think, solves a problem in that the Dodgers did not have a viable left-handed outfielder on their bench to act as a counterweight to Trace Thompson and Chris Taylor and Mookie Betts, although I don't think they're ever going to be platooning Mookie Betts, especially no. you now. But at the very least, That's they some galaxy
3: brain stuff. We're like, before, it would be <laughs>
0: awesome. But before signing David Peralta, their backup left-handed hitting outfielder was Jason Hayward.
3: That's not a position
0: you want to put yourself in if you're the Dodgers, is relying on Hayward to be taking... At least, to me, starting what at least four or five games a week. I mean, if, assuming he that you do not want last
3: year, I thought he was going to retire. Like, and that's I, but
0: that's the thing. It's like you're
3: you're banking
0: so much. Like Peralta's a guy who looked finished when he was on yeah. the Rays. There did not look like there was anything really left in the tank at that point. And I can understand midseason trades are complicated. You know, it's not always easy to make that transition. But at the same time, like they're relying on a lot of guys right now who just do not look like viable major league contributors. Or well, on the plus look side, like,
3: though. Tracy, like, what if Thompson's actually what he was last year? What if that's be the new great, consistency?
0: That dude ran, like, a 33% strikeout rate last year. Yeah. That's really hard to do is to be a productive major league hitter when you're striking out that much. Yeah, it's, like,
3: diversity he, plus is, like, 130, right? Like, he was a sneaky, sneaky high. But then you look correctly. at his
0: 2023 projections on our site, and he's running a 216 batting average with a 297 OBP. That's absolutely brutal. Like, granted, yeah. that's with a 430 slugging percentage, and that probably adds up to league average offense. But yeah that's that's the ceiling yeah or maybe not the ceiling what but is that's that 30 the, homers uh we've got a projected for 17. oh 17. Like, mm. that's the thing like even like and i don't know if this is i don't know what percentile projection that is but like that's not the floor for trace thompson <laughs> the floor for trace thompson is like getting released in june after hitting 180 for three months like, the Dodgers have put themselves in a really precarious position where they are relying on a lot of untested guys or a lot of dudes who are not the same as they were who have left their primes to be able to contribute on a regular basis. Not just contribute, but produce, you know? They can't really survive, especially with the Padres looking as they are, if the left-field platoon, essentially, of Chris Taylor and David Peralta combines for, like, an 85 WRC+. plus. You know, or if J.D. Martinez hits two homers through the first three months of the season, and it's very clear that he just cannot get around on fastballs anymore. Like, because the other thing is the Dodgers don't really have the internal options right now to do better than that. You know, Can they, they Hendo, are
3: Tatis Jr. plays center field. <laughs>
0: talk about a trade that would absolutely just detonate the universe as if the Padres man I would pay to just be I would pay to listen in on the phone call between Andrew Friedman and AJ Preller about that deal like I would just give me the (laughs) money to do that um but really I mean you're talking about like their minor league reinforcements are guys like Michael Bush who's one of their more highly rated prospects but again is a you know, a, a, he's a minor leaguer. He has not be, he has not made it to the major leagues yet, and that's mm. you know, or guys like James Altman and Andy Pahez, where it's like, yeah, I think those guys can be valuable part time contributors, but I don't think those are guys you really feel comfortable about being going like that's our next option if the guys we already have don't work. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, there's it's, it's similarly with the Yankees and their rotation depth after losing Montes, there's just not a whole lot left after that. Which is why I think, again, like when we talked about last week with Brian Reynolds, or two weeks ago, I can't remember now, mm-hmm. that I think that he is just the most likely target for the Dodgers because they really just need an outfielder. They can plug in and say, 155 games out of you. We don't have to think twice about this.
3: You need someone that you know. No one knows. It's like it just has to be a solid, it we know be, what you are. It bet. has to be
0: someone reliable, I think. And yeah. I think that's the problem with this approach is, you know, Trace Thompson, David Peralta, like Miguel Vargas, these are not reliable guys. Yeah. You know, those are guys where... If the rest of the lineup is super deep, you don't really worry too much. Or if those are your bench bats, great. That's what a bench is supposed to be. Like the bench right now is Jason Hayward and Miguel Rojas. Yeah, that's really bad. Like this Dodgers team, I think. I think it's going to surprise people that this Dodgers team is probably going to struggle to score runs relative to what they've, what we we're used to them, or what hmm. we're used to seeing from them rather. And I don't think David Peralta really comes anywhere close to fixing that for them. I mean, which is. Obviously, like they're not signing David Peralta to be the offensive savior, but I think he's illustrative of what a weird offseason this has been for the Dodgers where they're trying to plug holes with with paper towels and toilet paper. Like that'll work for a little bit, but I don't really think it's a, it's a solution that'll get you particularly far.
3: I can't wait to see what the NL West does. I think it could has the potential with the top 3 and then Arizona being the wild card team here where they could have the just perfect year and really put pressure on the big big three i don't know i'm very curious to see what the NL West looks like a couple months into the year because i think it might be chaos i think it might I, be
0: i am too and i think i think it's going to be really interesting to see how the because especially too i think if the padres get off to a hot start the pressure is going to be on la immediately to keep pace you know because what a question that, john yeah
3: because the nl central they don't have the best team no, no they could don't. you make the case that the top three teams going in the nl are all in the nl east no
0: because I think the Padres are probably better than the Phillies. Okay. But I
3: also I I mean they did just beat them.
0: They did, but I also but I think that the Phillies roster I mean I think they're but they're both very good. But teams, it's a conversation,
3: I, right? Isn't it weird no, that we look at the NL West as this juggernaut like the top like we've just been so afraid of the Dodgers and the Padres the last couple of years and it's like Wait a second. The NL East might have the three best teams in the in the conference. I think,
0: I think if you had expanded to who are the top five teams in the NL, I think it's no question that three of them are in the NL East and the yeah. other two are in the NL West.
3: Yeah. Isn't that great? And NL Central is going to host a playoff series. Like, they're going to skip the... Uh, Look, uh, we,
0: we we have to go through with our annual uh, <laughs> St. Louis Cardinals Memorial first-round playoff series <laughs> where they get knocked out after doing absolute fuck-all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's baseball tradition. I We... Look, is it is is it a postseason if the Cardinals aren't randomly there?
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> the answer is no. We don't. I don't even remember the last postseason the Cardinals weren't involved in.
3: Apologies to Will Leach. Uh, it's just
0: it is their birthright by God to be in the postseason.
3: Yeah. Best fans in baseball, man.
0: Best fans in baseball.
3: John Taylor, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Fangraphs.com this week?
0: So uh, as I've mentioned a few times before, we're getting ready for prospect week, which is coming up next week. Our top 100 plus all kinds of cool extra prospect stuff and college baseball stuff for now. uh, Buy or not buy it yourself. uh, Content yourself with a 2023 draft board update coming from Eric Longenhagen later this week, where he looks at uh, the top of his big board to get a sense of who's in play for the number one pick
3: hold on who... i have a question here about this then
0: if this Keep... is about tennessee baseball i swear to god it's about tennessee baseball john okay. it
3: right. comes back this week they start on friday they play arizona a real baseball game chase dillanders can you get a... is, is he number one
0: i i don't know i haven't seen the draft board update okay Pro- i mean probably i'm guessing cool. uh
3: well just use your influence john you know okay you know i i
0: about. will i will be sure to tell eric hey listen mm-hmm. this guy you don't know <laughs> but who cares very much about tennessee baseball Uh, The other big thing coming Mm -hmm. this week is we are going to unveil our 2023 or the first batch of our 2023 playoff odds. Uh, Last week, we put out the 2023 projected zip standings from Dan Samborski. Now we're going to go to the numbers that you all love to watch with uh, far too much interest every single Mm -hmm. day during the season to see the playoff odds. Uh, Those will be out, I believe, Thursday morning, so right around the same time. That we do, or that this comes out. So, if you see your team's playoff odds and don't like them, I wholeheartedly encourage you to direct message Jay Jaffe on Twitter and mm. let him know specifically. Jay loves it when you complain about stuff to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's something I think you should uh, that you, people should be on the lookout for. And beyond that, we're just getting ready for the season. And I want to mention again that uh, FanGraphs will be doing a membership drive. I do believe at some point in March will be coming with some new perks for our members. So there's never been a better time to sign up, except for whenever it is that happens, which, hey, you'll hear it from me first. But either way, come on over to Fangraphs, get yourself a membership, $5 a month, $60 a year for ad-free ad-free browsing, plus new perks coming soon. Uh, before, I, before I clock out too, I also wanna say, uh, Sports Illustrated once again, dropping the ax on a bunch of people uh, for what feels like the umpteenth time in the last few years. Uh, A lot of people I know personally, I'm very, you know, I'm fond of care about lost their jobs today. Uh, It's it's really hard to watch it happen over and over again, especially with a place like SI that has meant so much to so many people and that just seems to be committed now to doing the absolute bare minimum in so many ways. Uh, So I just wanted to, you know, give a shout out to those people who were laid off and to, you know, I hope they all land on their feet because this industry is such a hard, difficult place. And, you know, it's it they all deserve better than what they got from from SI the same way that everyone has been laid off from there has deserved better and uh keep your heads up everyone everyone is on your side everyone wants you all to get work again and SI's loss will be someone
3: else's gain I'm sure absolutely John Taylor always a pleasure and I will talk to you next week sounds good All right, we're back here on the Wednesday edition of the West podcast where I'm now joined by a first timer. Yes, <laughs> Sean Brennan is here. He's got the Supercross merch, the PR manager for Supercross, which is such a delight in the seasons back in full sway. Sean, good afternoon, sir. How are you?
2: I am excellent. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to be on your show for sure.
3: Thank you for being here. When are we getting a, a Washington State Supercross driver? When are we getting an Oklahoma racer? It seems like whenever each year I'm going through it, I'm like California, Florida. It's a, it's just a lot of the same kind of geographical regions just populate all the, all the superstars in the sport. Why is that?
2: Well, actually, we do have a, a fair amount of athletes from Washington State. Okay. Uh we also have a pretty good amount of athletes that train in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh but Colt Nichols is originally from Oklahoma. Justin mm. Bogle is originally from Oklahoma. Uh so there is a great training facility in Oklahoma uh that a lot of guys still uh you know still train at. Mm. Um but superstars, now there you go. Uh, Ryan mm-hmm. Villapoto was the last one from uh, from Seattle, yeah. Uh, and it's gonna be it's gonna be hard to beat his records. Uh, but there are a few guys, um, you know, that are about to and are already, you know, on the heels of that. But you know, it's interesting. Like other sports, you know, especially football and baseball. Uh, Most of the athletes are now in Southern California Mm -hmm. and really Central Florida, with a third being in Texas. Mm -hmm. And that's really because of the conditions where you can be on the bike and train 12 Mm -hmm. months out of the year. And especially in Florida with the humidity, uh, that really helps the athletes prepare for the pro motocross outdoor series as well. Mm
1: -hmm. So,
2: you know, it's really interesting Uh, Because a lot of athletes now, they end up registering for the event under the city and state where they currently train. Uh, But it really is interesting, uh, you know, the depth and breadth of where a lot of these athletes come from. Um, But I would still say that, yeah, for the most part, Southern California and Central Florida uh, and Texas are still churning out the majority of our athletes for sure.
3: So there you go. Fans, when you're watching on TV and you see all those Southern Cal, Central Florida hometowns and addresses, it might not be 100% accurate. It might just be where they train.
2: Yep. Yep. A good portion of it.
3: There you go. Um, the most exciting part of Tampa over the weekend was what, Sean?
2: Oh, man. Uh, well, first of all, being in, you know, that that is our home race. Uh, mm-hmm. So anytime that we're back here in Tampa, uh, we love it. Uh, and I think, you know, you probably heard Hunter Lawrence, uh, you know, mention, you know, and in some of his interviews, it's like I had to perform here because I had 30 of my neighbors Mm -hmm. (laughs) that were all at the race and were going to be asking me about it the following day, you know, and it's interesting because that's, that's the same with all of us. There were several of my neighbors, uh, that were there and you could probably, you know, for everybody behind the scenes at Feld Motorsports, uh, and most of the athletes uh, that call Tampa home, it was very similar. Hmm. Um, but you know, I'd have to say, you know, it was great racing. You know, first and foremost, uh, Hunter Lawrence in the 250 uh, class. You know, bringing it in that last uh, that last turn, uh, really, man, fantastic racing. Uh, but Hayden Deegan in that class as well. You know, Hayden just debuted. Uh, this was his second pro race uh and he's now you know uh, has earned two fourth places which is really really exciting uh it's great for the sport uh but uh my goodness he um is really you know showing that uh that he has he has the chops he has the talent he has the skills and boy he is gonna be a threat uh not only in that class right away uh but for years to come as well You know, I think the surprising thing was Eli Tomac having an off day. Yeah. Uh, You know, we heard a lot of, you know, everybody always, you know, after Eli, you know, everybody has an off day. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Eli is going to be just fine. Um, But, uh, you know, maybe it's the humidity uh maybe it was the sand who knows but uh you know Eli is going to be absolutely fine it was just an off day for him mm-hmm. uh but the 450 class my goodness the field is just so deep now there are so many guys that can win on any given day uh it is amazing to see Cooper Webb finally back on that top step uh and Aaron Plessinger holy mm-hmm. cow uh good to see him uh earn the podium as well Uh, you know, Chase Sexton is a superstar, he is going to be just fine as well. He is going to learn, uh, from this. Uh, you know, he's only 23 years old, you know, he's Mm -hmm. got a lot of racing still, but we're now four points, uh, between the top three, Mm -hmm. and then Jason Anderson is not too far back and forth as well. So, to be where we are right now, uh, you know, at this level of the season, and for the points to be. Uh, as tight as they are, uh, that's exactly what you would want in a healthy series.
3: That's why Eli can't have an off day because it's all tight at the top. He can't. No,
2: it really is. So, you know, believe me, uh, you know, I know that, you know, Eli was probably not happy with his results. The team was probably not (laughs) happy. But, uh, you know, again, he'll be just fine. But, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that he would prefer uh, having a little more of a cushion because he knows the depth of talent. That is going to be competing uh, for the for the rest of the season, and we have a lot of races still left to go.
3: That was a twenty twenty uh, race gap for Cooper. Is that correct? But in between 21. wins, twenty
2: one. Yeah, yep, twenty one races. <laughs> there you
3: go. That's pretty wild.
2: <laughs> That's a long time, and it's a great uh, story. So I know that he was pretty excited to finally, you know, get back there. I think that if he could have scripted. You know, scripting is big in football right now, right? Yes, that's true. of sports, you know, being scripted. Uh, But if he was scripted, he certainly would have not had a 21 race cap in his (laughs) storyline.
3: Absolutely. Um, Now I'm just imagining a GIF of just him being uh, shown the script for uh, a 20 race cap and just what his reaction would be. Mm
2: Right, right. He's hey, like, "What school. did I do?
3: What did yeah. I do to get this? I don't understand why. Like, wh- 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 what's wrong here?" And then Eli is just grinning over in the corner, and just having a good time. <laughs> yeah. and he's like, "This works for me. I don't know if this works for everybody else, but this yeah. script certainly works for me."
2: Um, I'm everything. Is everybody good with that? Yeah.
3: Somebody's got to be the star. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's
2: got to be the star. Why not me? <laughs>
3: It works. Um, for a fan, why is seeing supercross in person so much fun? Do you think? Wait, if you had to pull and like in if you had to best articulate why it's so much more fun in person, why do you think it is?
2: Because it's so hard to capture what these athletes are doing mm-hmm. on television. And you know, we have over 30 cameras um, you know spread around our track. Uh, We have microphones built into the dirt everywhere uh, and we try, you know, our best. There's over a hundred people that work on our television broadcast. Um, You know, we, we have the, the finest uh, tech and, Mm -hmm. you know, three TV trucks and producers and directors and, you know, um, you know, it's the same, I mean, it's NBC sports, you know, production. So Mm -hmm we spare no expense on the TV broadcast, but you just cannot capture what these athletes are doing on TV, Mm -hmm. you know, to really be able to see in person, the energy, the intensity, these guys being, you know, sometimes two and three, uh, racers, you know, you know, bar to bar deep going over these jumps where they're flying 70 feet in the air three stories high, you know, I mean, think about that. When you're in the 100 level of a stadium, you are looking up mm. at these athletes. And even though we have cameras underneath the, you know, capture the bikes from underneath capture, you know, over top, you know, you can't really, you, you, you miss that depth on mm-hmm. television. Right. Yeah. Um, but to be able to see that entire field of 22 racers, uh, where everybody is at, you know, 96, 97 percent maximum heart rate for 20 minutes plus one lap and are literally doing anything and everything they can uh, to find the fastest lines uh, throughout that race. There, there is nothing there is nothing like it. There just mm-hmm. is not another sport that is even close, um, you know, and then you have 50,000 screaming fans. Yeah. And it's just, you know, everybody has their favorite athlete. And you know, it's really it, it it's hard to follow because, you know, sometimes even live, because there's 21 racers, and you'll mm. hear, you know, a section scream about something, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're always like looking, whoa, did I miss something? <laughs> yeah. So it's very hard to you know, mimic that energy with any other sport. You know, mm-hmm. there are moments in baseball games, there are moments in basketball games and hockey and football, baseball. They all have the different moments, but you know, when the when that when that gate drops on supercross, it is a hundred you know percent on yeah. from the get-go, and it does not stop until that checkered flag uh, is 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 you know, uh, is raised. And Mm. I think that's what really makes this sport just so unique and unlike any other, and no matter where you are in the stadium. And and, and again, if we go back to our roots, you know, supercross was designed to be a stadium sport. Yeah. Uh, So when you go to, you know, a pro motocross event, you know, those tracks can be two and a half miles long. Mm -hmm. You don't ever see the entire, you know, track and course, uh, and every athlete, it's just way too big. Mm-hmm. But in a stadium, Supercross was built for that, built right mm-hmm. here in America. And I think a lot of people forget that, but it is as American as baseball and apple pie. Uh, and that's the very reason there is just so much action on that track at any given time that, it, it again, it's just hard to mimic anywhere else.
3: Can I give an old man answer as to one of the other pluses for folks? Yeah, not too loud. It's not too loud.
2: Like I, my
3: ears and doing the pod and everything. Like I don't know if I'll ever go to another NASCAR uh, race. Like it's just I can't do it. Like my ears, I could wear all the protection in the world, but my ears are so sensitive. And I remember I went uh, my first Supercross show. I because I'm from Atlanta originally, and nice. y'all were in the dome, and yep. that was just a cool. I missed the dome so much, and. The dome was just a really cool experience and it was just an electric environment, but it was just souped up and it was loud, but not too loud. It was cool. So it was enough to get the fan. Like I'm a kid. I'm like 12, 13 years old and I'm just in fully encapsulated by it from start to finish because it's not as long, but it's just like you said, where the second they start you're fit, like you don't lose your attention on anything. Like you are locked in from the beginning to the end and that's a rarity in other sports because other sports, they just go longer. Like there are different heats yes. in this, but the actual race itself, you were yes. locked in from beginning to end, which is a unique aspect of it.
2: Yes. You are not going to grab a hot dog. No, the event. you're not <laughs> no. doing it.
3: <laughs> no. And that's, that, that's a unique part of it. And that's, I think a big, a uh, big appeal. And that's one of the reasons like and I have so much to watch, like it's awesome where I'm able to just like, hey, all right, main event, let's go. Like, I'm able to just set aside my time and I'm like, I, I want to see how this goes. And it's a cool, it's a cool thing. Um, The track that you think ra- most racers love the most in the season, what do you think it is? What do you think they enjoy the most?
2: The one that the racers? Yeah,
3: the racers. The like if you had to pull them right now, who do you think they would say more often than not is their oh, favorite? Boy. track?
2: Um. You know, each athlete has their own unique, um, you know, skill set. So, of course, mm. they're all going to tell you, you know, the ones that, you know, that they, they are, win. <laughs> yeah, where they win, right? Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll say that 100% of the time. What's yeah. your favorite track? Uh, my last win. So, if you ask yeah. Cooper, I'll say he loves Tampa. <laughs> his best. Mm-hmm. But, no you know there are there are different rounds and different stadiums and i think that the racers like different uh venues for different reasons mm-hmm. you know if you would ask anybody you know active now even going back to our legends like ricky carmichael uh you know what what round produces the best dirt and 100% mm-hmm. they would say st louis so yeah. we're not going to st louis this year but by far when it comes to 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 dirt uh, there is something magical about that dirt in St. Mm. Louis so i think that a lot of racers would uh would lean towards the midwest mm. uh so indianapolis even nashville uh the dirt is unique uh atlanta uh, mm. i know a lot of athletes really love that red clay yeah um You know, Daytona is always special just because it is such a unique uh, event. Hmm. And that is more about the overall event uh, and the layout in in addition to the track. Um, Anaheim, the Anaheim opener, Hmm. uh, 100% the energy, the anticipation that the Anaheim opener brings uh, is, you know, it really is our Daytona 500, if you will. Uh, so I know there a lot of athletes would point towards that, which really isn't so much track, but overall just excitement in the history of that event. Um, but yeah, you know i I would think that you know it it really just depends on really where everybody is from mm-hmm. and what kind of dirt they are you know more acclimated to. Uh, but I would say more, it probably has more to do with the dirt than it does, you know, the actual, uh, track design, if you will.
3: Interesting. Um, what makes the new stars of this generation stand out from previous stars? What do you think different by and large with this group?
2: You know, they're, they're, they're growing up in a whole different age of athletes that we're mm-hmm. seeing in all pro sports. Uh, that you know, not only do they have the demands on the track and training and being a pro athlete competitively, mm-hmm. but it is one hundred percent always on with the media yeah. and with social media, and whether they are doing their their own, and that could be you know everything from just you know posting. On instagram to having full-blown you know vlogs mm-hmm. but it really is a 24 7 cameras are on you all the time mm-hmm. and that's good and it's bad um you know i think that that the youtube in particular and this is across all sports and all mm-hmm. athletes there is you know just a segment of society that you know, comments are just, my goodness, it's, yeah. um, I, I can see why some entities leave the comments off. Right. You know, if we could all go back to that old age of now, now I'm going to sound like the old man here. Here we go. Uh, you know, if you don't have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah. But people will just rip, you know, for the sake of saying just, you know, hearing their own voice, you know? Yeah.
3: Well, Eli had a bad day. They had to let him know he had a bad day.
2: Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably the biggest, you know, the biggest thing on current athletes and athletes coming up is that you really have to, you know, adapt to that, be prepared for it, mentally be prepared for it, understand its place, Mm -hmm. understand that that's not reality, you know, keep your team close keep it tight keep your circle tight uh but you know positive reinforcement you know all around and you know i say that you know there there's some of the negativity but but the positivity positive side to that is that you know athletes have such a big microphone now Mm -hmm. that you know whether it's you know uh, additional sponsorships are with NIL, NIL, you know, in call, co- you know, in college sports, like there is more opportunities now for athletes to spread their message and, you know, use their mediums and their platforms for, for positive uh, mm-hmm. than there's ever been in the sport. Uh, but, but knowing that there is a, a negative side out there and that the light is always on, Uh, that's probably the biggest thing that these athletes have to contend with that we didn't even have 10 years ago. Um, So it's changed very, very quick, and I'm sure that it's going to continue changing as well.
3: It's interesting you bring that up and I think what's going to be commonplace is just every athlete's going to have some sort of mental coach or something like that where mental health is just so critical and like you said they're always on 24-7 and it's just not realistic for any of these guys to be able to handle that uh, every no. day. Like, there's no shame in it and I think it's important uh, to kind of prepare and I mean you can do the classes before they get in but there's nothing like it once you're actually in the in the fishbowl. I mean yes. I had a high school coach on this past week and he's talking about like having mental health coaches and cause high school kids are seeing it like you're 16, 17 and you have yes. kids commenting. You have parents like yelling at you and commenting and stuff. It's like, these are 15, yes. 16 year old, but they're on social media. So they, yep. they're open season for stuff like that. And like, you just, you have no idea how, what that kind of weight places on a 15, 16 year old kid.
2: Right. These are yeah. amateur athletes. Yeah. That, that you're talking about high school, that, that yep. middle school. Those are they're, they're kids. Yes, they are kids. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, we we're talking about Hayden Deegan a little, mm. you know, a little bit ago. And, you know, he, you know, I, I don't like using the term YouTube star, but he is mm. a YouTube star. He has over a million fans on YouTube as well as, you know, a million on his other channels. Mm. And, you know, boy, he has been under that microphone, you know, throughout his entire uh, amateur career. And I think that his parents have done a really, really great job of, you know, uh, educating him, uh, being there for him, supporting him, uh, putting him in positions of strength, putting him in positions of positivity Mm -hmm. and really gauging all of that. Because, you know, in, in our sport, there hasn't been anybody uh, that has been in a fishbowl like Hayden, mm-hmm. uh, and I think with him going pro, you know, these last two races, um, you know, he could have he could have taken a dive, like he could have mm-hmm. really come out and 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 not had a positive showing. And I just cannot imagine <laughs> what that would have been like, you know, on social media. But yeah. he came out and he showed, you know, the world his talent that he has earned every bit of this. Uh, and, you know, I think if you follow, you know, the Deegan family, uh, as well as Hayden's channel, I mean, he's a great kid. He's got a great mm-hmm. personality. Uh, and he's got a lot of really strong supporters behind him. And mm-hmm. I think that it was just, you know, and even his team, Monster Energy, Yamaha, Star Racing. I mean, there's no, you know, nobody better as far as a support system uh you know in his corner so i'm thrilled that uh that he you know came out swinging he came out and showed the world what he's capable of uh because i think that you know if he didn't which would not have been any kind of real reflection of his talent or a predictor of his future success you know he could have just really had a difficult time with his first two races right But the way that the internet would have reacted to that uh, just would have been bad for all of us, to be honest. (laughs)
3: 100%. Um, What's the next best thing coming to Supercross, do you think? When you forecast the next 10 to 20 years and how much the sports already changed in the last 10, what do you think is the the next big thing in Supercross?
2: Well, right now, it's our Super Motocross World Championship uh for the first time you know in our 50 year sports we you know 50 years of of supercross and pro motocross we are finally working together uh mm. we've always felt like it is you know one sport two different disciplines uh because the disciplines are very different mm. uh supercross is very tight is very technical uh the racing uh is really precise uh, then you go outdoors and it's really, you know, it's rugged and it's higher speeds and it's more finesse, you know, with mm. the motorcycle and some of those things, as well as dealing with, you know, the elements of weather that mm. could be anything from 95, you know, hot and humid to, you know, complete rain. So I think the most exciting thing right now is that we now have a 31 event series that mm-hmm. combines the indoor stadium season with the pro motocross outdoor season. And then the, for the first time in our sport ever, culminating in a playoff and a world championship and or a Super Bowl, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: I think it's very hard for fans to envision what this is you know, really going to look like mm-hmm. um, because we've nobody's lived through it yet. So mm-hmm. we really don't know. But the top 20 in combined points, supercross, pro motocross, we automatically seeded into the playoffs. Mm -hmm. So every other sport, as soon as an athlete is injured, you know, before they're even, you know, hit the locker room, the fans are asking, my goodness, I hope, I hope they're ready for the playoffs. I hope Mm -hmm. they'll be back for the playoffs. And, you know, Unfortunately, we already have a few racers that have already, you know, been injured this season. So, like an Austin Forkner, for example, uh, you know, started the season off strong. He got injured. He's out now. But he has, you know, his championship with Supercross. Yes, he might not be, you know, uh, able to come back even in within this season. Uh, but if he does, he's certainly out of championship contention. But his goal right now would be to get back to Supercross so he can continue to gain points in Supercross. And then, of course, those will be combined with the pro motocross points. Mm. And, you know, he certainly can still win the pro motocross championship, but then he can also win the super motocross world championship at the end. Uh, And then, of course, you know, all of that comes with a very big payday as well. Yeah. So not only the bragging rights and the championship and all of that, but, you know, we have a $10 million purse this year, which is the biggest in off-road motorcycle racing. Uh, so there is a lot for these racers to uh, to to really want to, you know, rehab and get back on the bike and come back and compete. So, that we're we're excited this is year one uh again we have we've never gone through this Mm -hmm. but the storylines that we're already starting to talk about and then of course when we get towards the end of our season and you know as we go into pro motocross and those you know points really start accumulating you're really starting to see an accurate picture uh it's really going to be neat uh to get there uh and see how things are shaping up but I would say that right there, you know, that this has been the biggest innovation in, you know, our sport in 50 years. So to see where this could grow in 10 or even 20 years down the line uh, is going to be pretty, pretty neat.
3: I love it. Um, Are you comfortable unveiling how the script unfolds the rest of the season? Are you okay, (laughs) Or do you want to save that?
2: Yeah, no, the script. Off air, you can tell me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I appreciate silly. it. It's so silly. It's live sports. Like, man, yeah. I can't even believe that came up in the NFL, right? That's just where and we're at in
3: society. It, it
2: is. And mm-hmm. people believe it. yeah People believe it. Did you see Ryan Leaf's comment to it?
3: Mm-mm, I did not.
2: He's like, boy, I really got the crappy end of this dick, <laughs> didn't I? Like, wow, they must have really paid me good.
3: Yeah. Well, isn't that great, too? We get to see, like, the funny, like, the humility side of athletes where they are, like, making fun of themselves. And they're just, yes. like, or even teams being, like, "Like I'm a Falcons guy. Like, that's a really rough script. Like, the Falcons getting 28-3 to 3 and they're, like, this is what's... What? That's our script. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That yes, sounds seriously. awful.
2: Like, yeah. Yeah, let, let's all... Um... Let's all go for that. I'm good with that. Yeah, twenty-eight yeah. to three. We're just going to blow it.
3: Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to do. Perfect. Um, we'll end here. What are the good folks? Uh, can they look out for in Oakland this weekend? What's exciting? What are the the biggest storylines heading into uh, to this weekend? And Eli just breaking this rough streak for him. This rough he, weekend, he's got to get that he, off his back. Yes, and,
2: he's uh, got to. He's got to shake that <laughs> off. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, again, you know, we have four four points uh, that separate, um, you know, the four hundred and fifty class, and then this mm-hmm. week we'll be back to uh, to the Western region, so yep. we'll be able to see Jet Lawrence again. Uh, he'll be back on the bike, uh, Pierce Brown, and others. Uh, so it's been a couple weeks since uh, since we've seen them you know, the Oakland round, uh, was supposed to be round two. We're calling Mm -hmm. it now our rescheduled round two, uh, here in, you know, week seven, Mm -hmm. but you know, the Oakland round that, um, you know, Ring Central Coliseum, it has such a unique, uh, floor plan that Mm -hmm. we can really build a unique track there. Uh, so, you know we love going back to Oakland for the, the sense that we are able to build a really unique track there with the floor space. Uh, so you know, look for an exciting track this week. Uh, I definitely look for Eli, you know, to shake off the dust and whatever, uh, you know, may have been ailing him uh, in Tampa, but I definitely see him having a strong showing. And then the 250 class, uh, it'll be neat, you know, seeing if, um, you know, R.J. Hampshire and others uh, have uh, have an answer for Jet. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are predicting him to go undefeated. Um, I don't think that'll happen. Uh, not that he's not capable, but I certainly think that there are, you know, some real con- other contenders in that class that, again, uh, you know, don't have the script. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: they could shake things up they don't know what they're doing they're going in blind
2: shake things up a little bit mm-hmm. yes
3: <laughs> i love it yeah. i Ooh. love it well good luck this weekend uh keep up the great work supercross is growing and just a, a great product and uh whether you're seeing it in person or on the road we need to get you to, uh, to knoxville where i am now like we need to get y'all to knoxville so i can go local i could still make the trip to nashville maybe i'll do that this year
2: well you have an open invite to it well you have an open invite to any race but yeah okay. you got two coming up you got nashville yeah. as well as atlanta
3: i do have atlanta the home and that's just that's the spot but i can i just i'm an old head like, i'm like the dome was so much better it was more intense like the bins is huge and it looks like a spaceship and it's just it's <laughs> i like the bins but it just feel there was something grimy and beautiful about the georgia dome where <laughs> it was just it felt more just it, like the, the word is grimy it just it felt I liked it more. It's like the old Yankee stadium versus the new one. It's like Wrigley field. Part of the appeal is that it's really old and kind of grimy. Like that's
2: part of the appeal. No. And there were, it had, man, the Georgia dome had so much history with our, sport. Uh, you know, that, that venue off the top of my head. I'm not sure where that ranks in all time races, but it's pretty high. Yeah, it is pretty high for sure uh so no i can i can see that you're not the only one uh from the georgia area that that Mm. was their favorite uh so no it's understandable and that Mm -hmm. was a great venue for us uh this year we will be out at atlanta motor speedway there you go you haven't seen us out there yet i haven't oh my goodness you talk about a unique track Mm -hmm. uh that really allows us you know, a lot of space. I won't say it's a super motocross track because it is, mm-hmm. it is still more of a super cross track, but it really is, uh, you know, a space that we can really showcase what we can do with more space, uh, which is, you know, in NFL and Major League Baseball stadiums, we're always limited by the floor space. Mm-hmm. Uh but there at Atlanta Motor Speedway, it's like, boy, the imagination comes out because mm-hmm. there is plenty of room. So yeah, we've we've been there now for uh the past couple seasons. Yeah. So see that, that'll that be brand new for you. See that would
3: be brand new for me. I yeah, like it. So
2: brand new. And then of course Nashville, super excited to get back mm-hmm. to Nashville. Uh we're we're on like in every other year mm-hmm. uh with with Nashville and with St. Louis. So Hmm. uh, it's an every year uh, rotation for those two rounds. Um, So yeah, thrilled to be back in Nashville as well. So you have no, you have no excuse, man. You can, you can either head South, East mm-hmm. or you can head west, and you're going to run right into a great race.
3: <laughs> I think I'd go west. Like it's not as bad. Like Atlanta's a sneaky haul now. Like I'm not as close as people think because I have family and friends who are, like just come back. I'm like, it's a three and a half hour drive. It's not. It's not as close <laughs> as you think it is. That's a commitment. Like Nashville's like two, little over two. Like it's not as bad. Like I can right, Nashville in right. one day. Atlanta's not not as close as it feels like. Uh, I get yeah. to Asheville in an hour. Like it's just not East Tennessee. I love it, Smokies and all that. I love being here and being a ball. But uh oh, you're it is, in a great
2: location. Absolutely it's gorgeous. Like I got yeah. North
3: Carolina an hour, Virginia, Bristol's an hour, yep. in a lot of different directions. I'm pretty close to all the spots that I want to go to. Well, yeah. I might have to take you up on that, Nashville. Um, I want to let's see some stuff. Like let me, uh, I'll come through and we can uh, do some coverage. Maybe a live pod. Who knows? The possibilities are endless, Sean. <laughs>
2: (laughs) They are endless, endless. Mm -hmm. So yeah, live pod, that would be great.
3: We have a media day on Friday,
2: so lots Mm -hmm. of athletes to come out and interview. And then, yeah, we could get you set up somewhere nice and comfortable. You can do a live podcast. That would be great.
3: There you go. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for making the time today. This was a blast. Great meeting you and uh, look forward to talking with you more this season. And uh, you have yourself a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon.
2: You too. Thank you so much. Uh, It was great visiting with you here today, and I look forward to seeing you uh, in an upcoming race.
3: That's good, man. You're a good salesman. You're like, "Eh, you you got me in. I like it. Sean, (laughs) thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, we're back here on the Chase Most Podcast, even this on a Wednesday afternoon. First timer on the podcast because... There's nothing uh, any Blackhawks writer wants to do more in his downtime than talk about the 2022-2023
1: Chicago Blackhawks. But
3: that's what we're going to do on this podcast. Tab Bamford is here. Tab, good afternoon, sir. How
1: are you? I'm working on it. Uh, You know, the team could help that, but uh, I don't think they're going to help that until the draft happens in late June. So,
3: (laughs) I'm always curious, like, as someone who covers team and like, I've never been on a beat um, but I just, I wonder, do you enjoy, because there's like a different pe- different strokes for different folks, but do you have more fun covering a winner? Is it more interesting to get more stories covering a loser? Do you, is the rebuild more interesting to talk about, more interesting to think about than just contending year over year? Like what what have you found is the difference? Because I mean, the Blackhawks have been, been in both spots uh, over the last decade.
1: I mean, it's it's very different. I'll say mm. that. Um, obviously winning's more fun. The guys tend to be more jovial. Mm. Um, their uh, answers can be a little bit more long-winded. Hmm. Um, but I think it really, it all comes down to what's the, what's the vibe in the room? Um, because there are good teams that have a really mediocre vibe. They're teams that are successful, that not everybody's necessarily happy with their situation, especially this time of year where you're whatever we are, two and a half weeks, 12 days, whatever, 18 days, whatever the number is from the trade deadline. Mm. Um, So there's different situations in every room. So I think whether you're winning or losing, what the overall vibe is really impacts how the players, the coaches, the organization interacts with the media. And I will say, even though the Blackhawks have the, as we talk, second two dead last uh, point percentage in the NHL. This year's team has actually been pretty good to deal with Uh, a really good group of guys. I think that the front office did a smart job of building a roster, understanding that they were not going to be good, but guys that are looking to either reestablish themselves or just get that first good long permanent look in the NHL. So the vibe has been really good and the coaching staff is phenomenal. Richardson. Um, I've said this a lot of places him being hired as the head coach is the most impressive thing that uh, Kyle Davidson in this front office group has done since they took over so when you've got a coach that's really self-aware and and actually talks a lot surprisingly especially uh, you know with Joel Quinville saying little a lot of the mm. time uh, Richardson's been very eloquent a lot this year so when you've got a team that you know a lot of guys are, even when they're losing, tend to be in a decent mood or tend to be hard workers. Haven't had the exposure to the media that a lot of the older guys have had. Um, the vibe has been pretty good, and that really, I you know, theoretically comes through in how the media talks about a team. Um, because if guys are just going through the motions, I think it makes it a lot harder to. deal with and certainly there have been years recently in chicago that that's been the case but right now this year uh that is not the case this is a group that's still working hard pretty much almost every night
3: i'm a preds guy in the interest of full disclosure so it's like they're right there in the middle and they're just going to finish the year exactly 500 with exactly like a zero point differential and i think more preds fans are like just pick a direction and i I wonder how many fan bases are like because blackhawk fans i would imagine were kind of annoyed about treading water and pretending that you could still contend over the years and now it's like full-on rebuild this is more exciting I feel like Preds are kind of in that weird bind because you have a new ownership coming in we'll see how long Dave Poyle keeps this thing going is he going to be in there and you're like if they move on from John Hines it's like well then we know who they're probably gonna go it's probably gonna be Barry Trotz <laughs> is who you're gonna bring in instead so they're just there's you just feel kind of trapped when you're in that middle ground where Nashville has just found themselves in. And I think uh, the Blackhawks um, as painful as it's going to be for the next couple of years, I mean, at least you have a new direction that you can build in and there's something kind of fun. Cause I mean, you won cups happened like that all happened. Like it's not like the contention one. it's the worst case scenario is like the blue jackets, right? Where they really go for it and they, which, Hey, more power to them. That deadline was top notch stuff from them. And they deserve credit. Uh, I always want to shell out credit for teams that really make a go of it, even if it might sacrifice long-term stuff, because the whole point is winning, right? Like, that's, that's why we do this. The whole point is winning. They gave it their best shot, and now they're just, whew, it's going to be rough for a while. But, you know, they didn't get a cup out of it. The Blackhawks did. The Blackhawks contended. The Blackhawks have legendary players who we'll talk about in a second who might not be Blackhawks for much longer. But... Um, my first question to you, what has been the biggest bright spot on the ice for you? What have you judged it? Like, this is the, the biggest thing that you found, um, on the ice that, uh, has just made you and fans optimistic.
1: Well, optimistic is a tricky word, mm-hmm. uh, especially with this team. I think the optimism comes from watching the prospects that are going to be in the 23 draft, uh, mm-hmm. and the hope. The fingers and toes crossed, rosaries being said, all of the good juju that you can summon, that you end up with Connor Bedard and I think Adam Fantilli and Leo Carlson and Matt Bimitchkoff are really tremendous. I don't want to use the phrase consolation prize, but
3: mm-hmm.
1: if you're gonna not have the number one, if you're in that top three, I think really in shorter term. You can be incredibly happy The the pullback with Mitch is that he got the three years left in Russia so you're not going to get the immediate dividends from him that you might get from the other guys but there's hope with that Um, and with the optimism piece I think as we get closer to the deadline you look at the assets that are coming Um, they've already got two picks in each of the first three rounds this year in a draft that has been touted as being uh, incredibly deep uh, you know, second rounders this year that are getting grades that would have had them in the first round in any of probably the last three or four years. Um, so the optimism comes from that. The other optimism comes from Kyle Davidson has, by all accounts, done a really incredible job with what he's done acquiring assets thus far. Um, when you look at guys like Taylor Radish, who's having a career year. Very impressive. Um, when you look at all the draft picks that he stockpiled with the trades of guys like De Brinkett and Doc at the draft last year, and you know Frank Nazar has only played in two games, he scored a goal. Um, the wheels are still there, so he's still getting his feet under him. But you look at what people are saying about prospects like Kevin Korczynski and Ryan Green at Boston University, and there's a lot of hype. You know the Blackhawks were bottom third of the league a little over a year ago, by most people's estimations. When you look at the to find folks that do the organizational depth rankings. And the Athletic had them fifth in the NHL now with a big fat up arrow next to them. So the optimism comes from looking at the future, looking at some of the assets that they've been able to acquire. And with this team specifically, I think the optimism comes from seeing how the coaches are getting improvement from every Mm -hmm. guy on the roster who's been able to stay healthy. I'll put that significant cat on there. Because guys like, you know, Max Domi bet on himself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people thought there's this, he's not a number one center. Mm -hmm. He was a rental wing for Carolina down the stretch last year. He's 44% at the dot in his career. He's not a number one center. Well, he's winning 54, I think after last night, 54% of his faceoffs this year. Mm -hmm. And he's found a little bit of that scoring touch again. Uh, You look at guys like Jason Dickinson, a former first round pick who got a nice deal from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. It did not work there. I think you could make an argument that not much has worked in Vancouver And I would submit that when you've fired two coaches in the last less than two seasons, maybe it's not on the coaches, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when Bruce Boudreaux goes in there and can't get it done, even though he looked great for a couple months right after he took over. You know, he's had a really nice season as well. So when you see these young guys come up or, you know, reclamation projects or guys that are looking to reinvent themselves come in, and see that really strong improvement that says that the coaches are doing a good job. And so when, when you see the front office really firmly commit to the development piece and have guys like their top prospects, like Lucas Michael staying in Rockford, even though he's clearly ready for the NHL, um, taking time to really fully marinate these young prospects and then drafting well, having guys that are performing well in junior and college that are on their way here. Uh, and then you see the improvement from the coaching staff. You can have confidence that the organization is really doing this right. Cause I think a lot of organizations look at the word rebuild. And I think the fantasy is what the Rangers did. They told everybody mm. that they were going to rebuild. They went and stole Adam Fox from Carolina for almost nothing. And they had Artemi Panarin land in their lap as a UFA. And by land in their lap, I mean, he got the bag mm. and they turned it around in like Two years. Well, Mm Andre Miller's a big part of that. You have to draft well, you have to develop well, and you have to get lucky, and then you got to spend money. And, you know, that last piece of the optimism is the Blackhawks have zero forwards on their NHL roster right now, signed beyond next season. So, you know, I've called out a couple publications that do that forward thing. What do we think about this team in two years? And, Mm-hmm. They crap all over the Blackhawks for, you know, well, look at what they are now and look at what they have. They're not going to be good in two years. Well, how can you say that when in two years, zero of these forwards have been committed to? Mm-hmm. You don't know a sing other than probably Lucas Reichel, and you can guess on some of these prospects, but in a couple of years, you don't have a single forward that you know is going to be on the roster. So how are we projecting anything? For all we know, they could go give $14 million a year to William Nylander, Austin Matthews when they hit the mark in 24. Mm-hmm. So – Um, so I think the optimism comes from, you've seen some really strong steps with the pipeline. You've seen him do a really good job of staying intentional with the development, even though he easily could have been tempted to bring some of these guys up to help his NHL roster. And then you've seen coaches that are getting the most out of their players every night, even when the results aren't there in the win loss column. So those I think are the things that you look for if you're really intentionally, truly rebuilding that you want to see. And so that's I think where hope comes from. And then, you know, We'll see what he does with a, an enormous amount of cap space to play with. I mean, he's going to have to spend a lot of money just to get to the floor the next two years, hmm. which, again, you go back and talk about the Blackhawks when they were winning. Big reason that they fell off and a big reason that guys like Panera aren't here anymore is because of the cap crunch that they had playing as a max team for the better part of a decade. Well, hmm. now they're a bare minimum team. So let's see what their vision is and let's see how they execute it because spend, I think – The hardest part of the whole thing is how they spend all of that money because guys are going to have situations where they want to go win quickly or right away. Um, Certainly, you know, good article in The Athletic today about Seth Jones. He thought he was coming to Chicago. He signed an eight-year deal and looked around a team with guys like Hagel and DeBrinckit and Doc and Kane and Taves and Marc-Andre Fleury and Jake McCabe was coming in, and he thought he was coming to a team that was going to turn the corner fairly quickly Mm. Uh, and that didn't work. And I will point every finger that I have. Maybe I could be inclined to use one or two more specifically than others. uh, At the, uh, at the last coach that Stan Bowman hired, Jeremy Colleton was a debacle. Mm. Uh, And I think he set the franchise back a few years with just how he utilized players, the systems that he tried to implement and then the overall lack of development that they invested in Kirby doc. And I think Kirby doc is the poster child for, why there should be optimism and how they're developing guys now. So very long winded answer. But I think that the reality is if you really truly believe that a rebuild is the path to take, you have to really commit to it. And you have seen a lot of teams never really fully commit to it because money comes from butts and seats and butts usually are not in seats when the product on the ice, the court, the field is terrible. Um, so we'll see how long they can stay committed to it. And again, with all the money that they're going to have to spend, they start taking those incremental steps beginning next year. Um, but this is the draft that everybody wants to be at the top of just because counter Bedard appears to be a generational player.
3: When you look at the trade deadline coming up on March 3rd, do you think Chicago is active or are they mostly sitting out of what happens in the next two to three weeks?
1: No, I think they're going to be incredibly active. And I think okay. they've built a roster to specifically be active at this deadline. And when you're looking at acquiring Draft capital, that's why you go give a guy like Max Domi a one year deal with a $3 million cap hit. Mm-hmm. Because if he can look like a guy who can give you 20, 25 goals and win 50 plus percent of his face offs, he's now a viable center. Mm-hmm. And if you're a team that's in a cap crunch, like the Colorado Avalanche, and even at 50% retained, a guy like Sean monahan who's hurt, and Jonathan Taves and Ryan O'Reilly cost more than $3 million, a guy like Max Domi, might be a really nice fallback for them as they try to replace nazim kadri you know they've got young guys again like a sam lafferty who's finally getting a full crack in the nhl since they got him from pittsburgh who is doing a really nice job he plays with a ton of pace and i think that there are going to be teams that line up for a guy that's barely making a million dollars with another year of control um guy like jake mccabe he's been all over the trade rumors because at four million dollars, even if the Hawks eat a little bit of it with two years of control in his late 20s, he's a viable top four defenseman for really anybody, especially this year. I would submit he's been the Blackhawks' best defenseman this year, specifically on the defensive end of the rink. So when you package all that together and then you've got the looming decisions that are coming from 1988, you know, there's a lot of options that they have and they don't have a lot of expensive pieces outside of 19 and 88. And that's where teams that are still feeling the cap crunch from the pandemic and not having a ton of wiggle room can actually look at Chicago as being a a target for them to go find affordable pieces that might fix that one or two slots that they need to address. Interesting. Um, The next Chicago star will be who? I think the next face of the franchise will probably, at this point that they've Mm -hmm. already, it's part of the organization will probably be Kevin Korchinski. Mm -hmm. Um, He plays with a ton of speed, great hands. You know, there were some draft people that were throwing Kale McCarr's name around. I won't go that far Mm -hmm. because that's a huge ask. I mean, you're talking about a guy that's doing things that we really haven't seen in a long time,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, probably since a young Eric Carlson, though Carlson's found the fountain of youth this year and might be the first hundred point defenseman in 30 years. So, um, he's a guy that can drive an offense. Uh, I think Sam Savoie who they drafted in the third round, you know, when he came into training camp and then played in some preseason games, he definitely got and earned every bit of the Andrew Shaw vibe fans really latched onto him during training camp and preseason. So he's another guy that I think a lot of people fall in love with. Um, Ryan green at Boston university. I mentioned him before, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was a guy that a lot of people thought was a nice prospect. He's really emerged as a top-flight guy. You know, he's playing top six minutes at Boston University as a centerman. He's putting goals on the board. So I think those are guys that they've already drafted who could quickly emerge as as some of the centerpieces. I think Frank Nazar could be the heartthrob of the team, if you will, the next showtime um, If you saw the goal that he scored against Michigan State in his second game after coming back from injury, him holding the, you know, up to his phone yelling, I'm back, mm-hmm. was everything that you want if you're sitting in the marketing department at the United <laughs> Center right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, they've got a lot of young guys that have a lot of sex appeal. I think Lucas Reichel is going to be a really nice forward. I, I don't think I'd slot him as a top-line guy. I think he's a middle-six guy, but I think there's a lot of ability there. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if the Blackhawks end up with Bedard or Adam Fantilli, that will be the face of the franchise for the next decade. One of those two. But they haven't picked him yet, so I can't give that as a hard answer. Yeah. Uh, But I think if you can end up with one of those two, that's the guy that you're putting on the marquee replacing 19 and 88 going forward.
3: Interesting. Um, The biggest name move by the the Blackhawks uh, over the next two to three weeks will be who?
1: My heart doesn't want to say it, but my brain is telling me that it's going to be Patrick Kane. Where um, do you think he goes? The rock in the hard places, I think there will be teams that will be willing to give up a first-round pick to get him. Hmm. If he gives a list of more than three or four teams, I think that that's where the bidding will start. And hmm. I think the best fit for him. And the scenario that he probably likes best now that the Rangers are off the table is probably Dallas who do not have their first round pick. They traded it hmm. to the Rangers before the season started. So, um, you know, depending on what Dallas is willing to give up from a futures perspective or, you know, possibly one of their top prospects, which they're said to not want necessarily want to move on from prospects that they've invested in developing because of the age of the roster that they have at the NHL level. I mean, Jamie Ben just played his thousandth game. Joe Pavelski isn't getting any younger. Tyler Sagan isn't getting any younger. So the guys that are really leading the ship down in Dallas are older, which I think is why Patrick Kane would fit in there so well.
3: And um, they score all the time. They're just uh, and they yeah. they beat the Preds uh, seven to one whenever they play the Preds. So that's always yeah. good. That's uh, they,
1: they they got the extra point, which was nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know that's where I think the biggest name will probably be Patrick Kane, even though mm. my heart would prefer that 19 and 88 both retire as Blackhawks. But do you think there's a chance you might go basketball.
3: to them and just say, I'm good here. Like I'm, I'm good. Do you think there is a possibility? He's like, I'll ride it out. It's fine. I
1: think right now it's legitimately 50, 50. Hmm. Um, his agent told Dave Penyota at the fourth period that he has not made a decision yet. And the interest from that is, you know, Patrick Kane has a kid now. Hmm. He's got a son that he goes over and daps up through the glass during warm ups every night. So there's more consideration here, you know, when you've got deeper, I mean, you know, at Canaan Taves have been here for their entire adult lives. Yeah. They both showed up as teenagers and now in their, they're entering their mid thirties. They've never worn another Jersey. They, the only Mm -hmm. other place that they lived was at home with mom and dad, or, you know, somewhere on the road in junior, or, you know, in Taves' case, the one year at North Dakota. So you know, this is where they've spent most of their lives. When you look at the, you know, their resumes before the draft, and in Tave's case, for a year after, a lot of it was bouncing around, and every two or three years in junior, climbing the range. So this is where they've been home, hmm. with a capital H, the most in their lives, and that means a lot. And I think that's why it's been so hard for either of them to make a decision. Uh, so I do think that there's a real chance, and I think that there's a, an actual possibility that one or both of them goes to the front office and says. I'm cool with the direction you're going. I love playing for Luke Richardson. Hmm. Tell me how much you'll be able to give me for the next couple of years. I'll hang around and help the next wave. Take the mantle from me. Take it from us.
3: Because so, they have cap space.
1: Yeah. I mean, you they, could... Yeah. I don't think they're going to give him 10 again, but I think, you know, yeah. if, if Jonathan Taves is willing to take a three by four and the front office is willing to have a really hard conversation, which, again, you're talking about a GM in his late 30s, talking to a player with three rings in his mid-30s. It's kind of a tough conversation, especially mm-hmm. when he's a rookie GM. Um, it's kind of hard to look him in the eye and say, you will be a third-line center. Mm-hmm. and We're going to give you less than half of what you were making before. Are you cool with that? Mm-hmm. And if the player says, yeah, I'm cool with that, then I think it's a really, it's a much harder conversation to have. Um, but I I think everything is on the table right now. It's really up to those two players to figure out what they really want to do. And I think more so in Taves case than Kane, I think he's having more of a, an internal conflict about how much runway is really left on the career. And if he wants to go somewhere for two months or a year or two and go play the free agency game when he could just only wear one Jersey. So it sounds like more likely than not that it's Taze who stays and Kane has moved. I think, it uh, honestly, I think it's 50-50 on both of them. Mm. I really do. Well, that's a good
3: sign for uh, Blackhawks fans, right? And that means it's probably pretty likely one ends up staying.
1: Yeah, and and there's a very real possibility that, you know, one of them says, here are the three teams that I'm interested in, and Mm. they don't have cap space and can't find a third team to jump in the fray and make it work financially. Yeah. Colorado is going to be a really hard sell to figure out a way to fit either one of them. Mm. Edmonton is going to be really hard sell to fit either one of them. Um, so that, that's the other reality that we need to recognize here is even if they give a list of teams that they prefer to go to, it still takes two to tango. And while Edmonton would love to have Patrick Kane on their second power play and Colorado would love to have Jonathan Taves as their second line center, if the money doesn't work and they can't get a full deal realized, it, it can happen. And that, that's the really hard thing to, to navigate, I think, if you're a rookie GM right now, is what's the list of teams that they'd accept to and what can they offer you that you're actually okay with taking? Um, because you don't want to trade Patrick Kane for a fifth rounder and call it a day just because he says he wants to leave. You never want to sell short on an icon. Um, so thats I think that's where it really starts to get tricky, uh, is what do you get back? But it, it sounds like both of them will have that conversation with the front office here in the next week or so and give teams about a week to 10 days to get their house in order and figure out what the best they can do to to get that player to come. So if you're Edmonton or Colorado and you're really dead set on landing 19 or 88, you better figure out how to make those financial gymnastics work and get on the horn with somebody else to sell something possibly way under value because uh, if you really – our dead set on making that happen you're gonna have to jump through some hoops to make the money work there you go well
3: tab this has been great i appreciate you making the time today what can the good folks check out from you and uh everything going on bleacher nation everywhere else
1: yeah every day all day BleacherNation.com. running their blackhawks coverage on on the twitters i'm at the one tab so hit me up and uh yeah we'll uh we'll see what happens here we've got a Couple of weeks until those of us that write about the team can comfortably go to bed at <laughs> a reasonable hour and not have our phone waking us up whenever it pings. So, looking forward to March fourth. I've already got a massage scheduled for the morning.
3: <laughs> there you go, deep tissue.
1: Of course, yeah, absolutely. You got to go deep tissue. Those yeah, boxes go are deep. not the most comfortable place in the world to work. Like I tell you.
3: <laughs> and it's just good when you get older, man. We're I'm in my thirties now. Like I, I push back against it. I'm like, nope. I need it. Those are, uh, they actually do. And sitting in these chairs, like who knew that being a, a writer, podcaster, you would get all these cricks and crannies and you need to,
1: you need to work it out. i was playing football in college. So I've got stuff that hurts anyway. And then I've got a six grade son that plays travel baseball. So coaching, that's another pain in everything, including the <laughs> rear end. So, uh, so yeah, I'm ready to get that, but that we'll have to wait until the dust settles on the third of March to see where we go from there. So hopefully I think, all expectations are that the Blackhawks will be one of the most active places in the NHL. Now the intrigue is what they get back and who actually leaves the building. So I'm sure that there will be a surprise. There always is. Somebody will say, how the heck do they do that? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there are some other really big fish out there. And so this could be you know an all-time deadline for the National Hockey League, too, if the if the biggest fish can get moved. So it's an exciting time if uh, if you're able to sleep at night.
3: There you go. Tab, thank you so much. Enjoy the next couple of weeks. Get some sleep when you can, and uh, we'll have to talk again very soon.
1: Absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a
0: friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker, or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team
1: at six eighty The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves.
2: Chase, I think I'm gonna hear more about you. I really do. I think you've got a way about you that you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. You're, um